Today, I'm joined by Jason Crawford, who writes a blog called The Roots of Progress. And Jason is spending a lot of time thinking about the history of technology and industrial progress, human progress in a way, and has done a bunch of fascinating writing and thinking on the topic. So we'll get super deep into this today. He's got a background as a, a startup founder and engineering manager. He's worked on the startup side, on the big company side, at, at companies you've heard of. I'm sure we'll cover those things. But the the kind of primary focus of what we're going to look at today is Jason's focus for the last you know, three or so years, which has been really charting kind of history and what we can you know, understand from history on as it relates to human progress. So we will dive in on that today. Jason, thank you for uh, making the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, so before we, we kind of dive in, right, can you give us like the 30 second or 45 second overview of just what is Roots of Progress or the progress movement in general and why do you care about it? Yeah, sure. So the progress movement or the the idea of progress studies is the idea that we human progress, especially I think focused on kind of scientific and, and technological and industrial progress, is a crucially important and kind of understudied, maybe underappreciated area that there is, you know, some but not enough focus on today and more people should be paying attention to. So last summer, Tyler Cowen, an economist at George Mason, is part of the Mercatus Center and runs a popular blog called Marginal Revolution. And Patrick Collison, who is the co-founder of Stripe, the two of them co-authored an article in The Atlantic titled, We Need a New Science of Progress. And they called for this basically interdisciplinary area, I would say, which they called progress studies. And, you know, they said there's some work going on here, but not enough. And there needs to be more of it and more attention paid to what is going on. Contrary to, or in, in contrast to, I would say, existing disciplines such as history, economics, History of economics, history of science, philosophy of science, sociology, industrial psychology, all those areas that sort of already exist and, and touch on the concept of human progress. I think what they were calling for is a little more interdisciplinary and a little more prescriptive, normative rather than, you know, merely descriptive or cognitive. You know, they were calling for something that actually tells us what to do, uh, tells us how to keep human progress going and how to make more of it happen, maybe even accelerate it. And this is motivated in part, but not in whole, by concerns that there is some sort of a slowdown in progress, a stagnation. This is a theory that uh, Tyler Cowen has addressed in some of his books that Peter Thiel has harped on, that the idea that yeah, growth is slowing down, we're not as innovative as we used to be, and there's all sorts of sort of ideas behind that. But I, I would say whether or not you believe that uh, growth has slowed, I think we can all agree that we want growth, well, we don't all agree, but I think a lot of us can agree that we want growth to keep happening, and if it can happen faster, it ought to happen faster. So that was uh, the origin of this thing called progress studies. Now, personally, I had gotten interested in the topic some years earlier. So for about three years now, about three years ago, I started as a as a hobby, a well, first it was just a reading project. And then as the books I was reading were, were very fascinating, I ended up turning it into a blog. And the blog became my hobby. And then it became my obsession. And then a few months ago, when I when I left my last job and I asked myself, well, what do I really want to do now? The answer was, turned out to be not go get another job in the tech industry and turned out to be not even go co-found another tech company, but actually to just spend as much time on this on this blog as I could. So that's what I'm doing now, pretty much full time. And the blog itself is about the history of technology and industry, more broadly, the story of human progress. I'm looking at questions like, how did we get here from where we started? Why did it take so long? <laughs> and how can we keep it going? 
Okay, so that that's interesting. And before we dive into kind of the the progress stu- the progress study stuff, I, I want to kind of understand that decision to go full time. So it, it sounds like this is kind of a uh, a personally motivated kind of interest driven decision. It, it, was this you know I made my money. I'm uh, I'm yeah I'm going to go retire, and this is my retirement project, or is it something different? What kind of help me you know help us understand that? That would be nice. No, I never made it. I never made enough money to do that. And in fact, I am funded right now in part by grants. So the one grant that's been announced is from Tyler Cowen from his fund Emergent Ventures. There are a couple of other grants from other funds that I will announce soon. And I am also taking on some part-time consulting work with an excellent organization called Our World in Data, which is very aligned with the whole sort of progress worldview and happen to need exactly my skill set in terms of being an engineering manager, product manager, sort of tech you know, leader. And so that has been a great collaboration. We are uh, big fans of our world and data here. So uh, it's, thanks, thanks for the work you're doing there as well as the work you're doing at Roots Progress. So it was absolutely interest-driven in that I needed to do something next. And I, I just asked myself, what do I care about most? And it was, you know, it was... It was strange. I'd done. I've co-founded two startups. One I was CTO. The second one I was CEO. So that second one was it was my idea, my vision, my sort of my product vision that I was driving forward. I was I was obsessed with that product vision, and I you know started the company because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I spent five years on that startup. It was called Fieldbook. And by the end of it, I felt a little burned out on that particular vision. I felt other people, frankly, were executing it better, and I didn't see space anymore for it to be done. So if I was going to do another startup, it kind of needed to be something different. But there was no particular thing that was really pushing me, pulling me, driving me. There was nothing, there's no idea I felt nearly as passionate about as I had that thing in the past. But what I did feel obsessed with was not a, a any kind of a startup idea, but actually this research interest of going and understanding the story of human progress. So I, I, and I felt about that project the way I had felt about, you know, my startup when I started it. So I just said, okay, on the, you know, the basic principle of like, follow what you're obsessed with. You know, it it was the one thing that I felt that I could not see myself not doing. As in, if I knew if I took any job, I would not, I would somehow feel incomplete. I would not feel whole unless... I was continuing to do this side project, but I also, but I knew also that if I took the side project full time, I would not feel the need to do anything else in, you know, productive in my life. And so that made it pretty clear what to do, even though it was in a way, it was a huge transition. I I had to, you know, I'm almost resetting my identity here and this is difficult. And I had to, and it's been difficult to sort of set aside one dream, even though uh, in a sense, I'm kind of swapping it out for a, a new and different dream. Oh, I, I, so I have a ton of questions around that, but let's you, you opened up identity, so I want to I want to dive in on that while it's fresh. What what does it look like to reset your identity? Like what what are the challenges involved in that? And you still talk about engineering management. You're still doing some part time work in engineering management. You're yeah. You know, when we're doing the prep for the call, you're like yeah, feel free to ask about that stuff. But in some ways, that's a, a different Jason, right? Or at least a different Jason than you're trying to become. It's very difficult in from one perspective, and yet. It was not at all difficult from another perspective. And I think the part of what made me able to make the transition and make it a smooth one, let's say, is an ability I've developed over many years to shed all expectations, all sort of external expectations of who I am and what I'm supposed to be and 
uh, even my own in a certain sense, and to simply focus on, I, I mean, I have this mantra for myself, which is that the only thing that matters in life is what you want and how you're going to get it. And what doesn't matter is what other people think of you, uh, except as it's relevant to that. What doesn't matter is what you thought you were going to do or going to become society's expectations, your own expectations, which were probably based on society's expectations in some way, or maybe they're contrary to society's expectations, but they're based on something from how you grew up. Any notion of whether you won some you know, weird social contest or points, like there's all this stuff that impinges on your consciousness and, and on your emotions in a strong way. And at the end of the day, none of it matters. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is, did you define what you want in life? Were you able to go after it? Did you do your best going after it? And did you get as much of it as, as was possible? And so I think that perspective helped me shed you know, these notions of, you know, and what are my friends going to think about me? And is the world going to see me as a loser? And, oh, I guess he couldn't make, he couldn't cut it as a startup founder. So he had to go do something else. And, you know, it's like, there's all those worries and fears that impinge in the back of your consciousness. And I'm able to, I, I'm not, it's not that I'm not subject to those. It's more just that I'm able to see them for what they are and calm them down or calm myself down in the presence of them. And, and so to move on and, and so to, to cut through that noise, to see with clarity, what do I really want and, and, and what is my true happiness and to go for it. Do you think that you were innately or, or in early development kind of, you know, empowered with that, that worldview? Like, were you able to deal with the impingements, you know, earlier or easier than most? Did the impingements strike you less or has this been a struggle? I grew up in a sort of Ayn Rand objectivist household and I had those influences from very early on. I read her novel, The Fountainhead at age like 12, 13. And, you know, that's a vision of someone who really doesn't care what the rest of the world thinks <laughs> about him or anything else. And so I think there was a certain, you know, probably from early on, I think I had a couple of things. One was I had, I had this sort of explicit vision of independence as a virtue, as like a cardinal virtue in life. And the other is that I had maybe the experience of being in the minority. And so I got very used to being in a minority and sort of having, you know, maybe not sort of conforming to the rest of the world at large. And I think those things probably helped. But I don't know, maybe there's something else that's a little more inherent to me who I am in some way that I, it's hard to put my finger on, hard to get outside yourself, you know. Totally. Self-introspection is, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time diving into it here, but uh, but never easy, right? Is is that the kind of like objectivist or rationalist approach? Is that when you say kind of being in the minority, is that the holding of unpopular opinions? Is that kind of what you're what you're talking about there? Or is that something different? Yeah, I'm just, I'm very used to not agreeing with people on stuff, <laughs> on deep, important things. So I got used to that early on. Got it. So the, uh, the, the Peter Thiel dinner question, you've got lots of practice uh, answering things you believe that people don't agree with you on. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> cool. Well, so the, it's funny because before we before you talked about identity, which I think is 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 still an interesting topic to dive into. The thing that I wrote down is you know you you used to be a startup founder, like from the outside looking in. Obviously, you're you know we contain multitudes. And if I were to try to go a layer deeper based on what you just said, you were clearly passion driven, and you know I think you've got a like a bent towards researcher knowledge. I, I I'll hesitate to use the label researcher, although I think it's apt. But I but when I think about kind of the progress studies field, because I think that's basically in the 
you know, in the zeitgeist of being created right now. When I think about the progress studies field, I wonder if this is, you know, indicative of you being a, a movement creator or a artist or something that is kind of different than what most people would think about when you think about, uh, you know, an academic or creating an academic field. Do you feel any kind of tie to anything that is not, you know, historically what people would think of when they think of, oh yeah, that's the founding of an academic field? Because I think founding an academic field is very different than, you know, being a follower or a student or a leader in that field after it's been created. Yeah. So first off, I'm not an academic. Uh, I don't have the training. I don't think I want to be an academic. I don't. Th- I, I could change my mind about this in the future, but I don't actually think that's the path I want to take. The work I've done with m- the Roots of Progress so far is really more uh, making what is already the best of what's already known, you know, to specialists in the field accessible to a much broader audience. I think there's an enormous amount of extremely valuable knowledge that's been discovered and written up, but to a non-expert, it's very hard to get at. When I wanted to, for instance, understand the history of iron and steel production and how that happened uh, and what the sort of key concepts and, and developments were, it was I found it quite difficult to get clear answers on basic questions. The information is out there, but it's in very dense, dry works. Sometimes it's scattered throughout different, you know, maybe books and articles. You know, in a sense, my, my superpower or like the, the the only thing that I do, my, my trick or secret, is that I go read about 10x more than any reasonable person would read in order to answer a question. And then I sort of distill the 10% of it that actually does answer the question. And I write that up in a you know, blog post for a, a general audience. So right now, I would say I'm more of a, a summarizer, a synthesizer, a, a popularizer. I'm certainly not discovering new knowledge that has never, you know, been known to anyone in the human race. And I don't know if I ever will. And in fact, I think there's an enormous amount of good to be done just by taking, again, taking what is known and synthesizing it and making it accessible to a broader audience. So if that's all I ever do, I think I still will have done something enormously important. If in the course of this, I can also discover some something new, some identification, some or at some angle on it or formulation of it that, that no one has ever come up with before, so much the better. And I'm certainly on the lookout for that. So I'm certainly not the one to found a new academic field, uh, being outside academia and with and with no, no, not even thinking that academia is exactly my path. I'm more, it was much more the type of person uh, maybe to found a movement and, and, uh, and something a little more popular. I have always, so I mean, one other, I would say legacy of, of having maybe Rand be an early influence is just being extremely conscious of the power of ideas, the power of ideas to move people, to move history. I would say relative to some other folks that I have talked to who are very sympathetic on the entire progress focus, I put more focus than some on the power of fundamental ideas of, of you know, culture, quote unquote, um, of our ideas about progress. I think our view of progress, whether it's possible, whether it's desirable, whether we should be gung-ho about it or, or reserved about it or worried about it, whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic in a certain sense, I think those ideas have a deep impact on what we actually do and on whether we even attempt to make progress or not and how we react to progress when it comes along, how we deal with it, how we deal with its uh, problems, with its failings, with its risks, with its downsides. And so I think that stuff is 
is very important. So yeah, for me personally, I would say it's closer to closer to movement than academic field. However, there are others involved who are who are real academics, uh, unlike me. And uh, I would love to see an academic field founded or uh, you know alongside this. Uh, and I don't even know if it's a separate field, by the way. To my mind, progress studies isn't even exactly a field. And I don't know if anybody, including Tyler Cowan and Patrick Carlson, would agree with the following statement or anybody in academia. But to my mind, it's not so much a field of study as it is a way, a, a worldview, a way of approaching many different fields. It is a as sort of a set of premises and values about, a set of ideas about what is important, what should we focus on. It's this basic orientation, let's say, that progress is real. It's important. It's fundamentally good. It's actually extremely good. Tyler Cowen says in one of his books that uh, it is essentially a moral imperative. That's how good and important it is. And that we can, but also that it's not automatic or inevitable, that we have to make it happen. And that if we don't make it happen, generation after generation, it's not going to happen. It's going to stop happening. It's going to stagnate, slow down, even stall or stop, uh, or possibly even reverse. You know, progress can be and has been in history lost. So, and I think with that sort of perspective, you can take that perspective and come at many different subjects. So you can be a historian and have that perspective. You can be an economist and have that perspective. You can be in the history and philosophy of science and have that perspective. And I think if you do, it changes what questions you ask. It changes what catches your attention, what you think is important and interesting. And then it, it also changes kind of like, what do you do with your conclusions? Do you take you whatever you find and uh, turn those into, you know, do, do you have ways of that your knowledge can then be applied to the world to make more and better progress? So that's how I see it. Um, so maybe it's, I don't know, some sort of a school of thought rather than kind of a new field exactly. But I hope that that will get established in academia and I'm happy to help with it. I'm just not the guy to lead it. Totally fair. So more, more of a worldview, more of a school of thought. What, what's, a, what's the best corollary for progress studies in history? Well, I think about broad, and this may be grandiose, but that's just me. I think about broad cultural movements like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, which were sort of major shifts in you know how people thought about the world, about humanity's relationship to the world, about human life and society. This might not be quite as broad or important as, as those things. Maybe this is more of a microcosm of them. But certainly if you look back to, I mean, so one thing about this, this notion of uh, being gung-ho about human progress is it used to be universal, <laughs> pretty much. So if you go back to uh, especially the 19th century, almost everybody was pro-progress. You didn't need a, pro a progress movement back then because it was just in the water. It was it was what everybody thought and felt. And and we can go we can go deep into that. There's a lot of interesting things about like how we used to celebrate progress, how optimistic people were. They really saw the world as moving forward in an unprecedented way. And it was. It, it was. They were absolutely right from a historical perspective. Before we dive too deep into those examples, I want to kind of orient the listener into other examples of what you're thinking about with progress studies. And then I want to define progress studies. And then let's go super deep on the examples. So when you think about these ideas of like worldviews that influence multiple fields or in, basically they change how you engage with a topic. What are other examples of this maybe from the last 50 years? You know, I'm thinking of 
yeah, maybe data-driven thinking is one that might have emerged in the last 20 or 30 years, or yeah, the kind of thinking around statistics has kind of certainly influenced how we how we do lots of different types of things. What are other examples that might be familiar to a listener of a worldview shift that kind of catches fire and then ends up changing lots of things around it? Yeah, I don't know the history of academia that well. But I mean, one thing that's coming to mind, again, I I don't know it super well, but just from what I've seen, and in my opinion, it's not a positive example, is um, what's known as critical theory, which includes, I believe, uh, super not an expert here, but like critical race theory. It's this sort of worldview of, I'm going to put in my own words here, the world and society is kind of splintered into these identity groups based on race and sex and so forth. And that this kind of colors all of our narratives, they might say, and that there are these uh, sort of eternal power struggle between the different groups and kind of seeing seeing the whole world in terms of oppression and this and this power struggle between groups with the moral imperative kind of being to like balance power. And this colors everything. And it is certainly in itself an approach to, you know, to history and to economics and to like, you know, and to even epistemology and sort of like you know, any any subject in, in a sense can be colored and influenced by this worldview. So that's like an example of something that I think has come about in the last, I don't know, however many decades, but maybe roughly 50 years. And that is having a huge effect on academia now across different things. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you were looking for. It's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, no, super, super helpful. I, I, I generally don't guide these things. I just try to ask the uh, uh, ask the questions and try to figure out what I don't know and try to go deeper into it. I mean, just based on, and obviously we, yeah, we've whatever followed each other on Twitter or I follow you on Twitter for a while. So I feel like I have like some glimmer of, of some of the things, but I actually feel like I'm learning a lot about you and your approach to these things. I kind of through this interview, which is, which is super interesting. And so I'll, I'll dive into some of the, some of those things as we get into it before we kind of push forward on that front. What is progress studies? Like, like I know you've defined this as kind of the study of human progress. Maybe actually the better question for the listener would be, what is progress? How do we define that you know, concretely? Progress, to my mind, is defined by a fundamentally humanistic standard. So it's anything that helps us live better lives, be healthier, happier, have more control over our environment, and so I, uh, or understand our world better, you know, live, live better in harmony together. To, to my mind, the, the story of progress is, uh, the, there's sort of three broad areas that I think about. The one I've been focusing on is technology and industry. So that's progress in that area is more wealth, more technological capacity, more industrial capacity and infrastructure, more ability to control our world and produce the thing, the material things that we need to live our lives. The second major area is science and our understanding of the world. So more knowledge, more more progress in science and understanding is is progress. And then uh, the third area is society and government. So more peace, more freedom, more universal rights for everyone, more just learning how to get along together and uh, you know not be at each other's throats. So yeah, those are that's that's how I think of progress itself. And you've picked kind of technology and industrial progress as like the primary focus that, that you're spending most of your time engaging with, right? For now, long term, I'd like to cover all three areas, but I'm starting with technology and industry. Who are kind of allies in this, in, you know, in the progress studies movement that are more focused on science or society and government that, that you think are interesting? Well, one of the things I would look to here is Steven Pinker has written a couple of books. And I, I have no idea, by the way, if he's even heard of this progress movement or concept or what he thinks of it. But I was inspired by his books. The Better Angels of Our Nature is a good one summarizing a lot of the progress in, on society and government, sort of about the decline of violence. And then his more recent book, Enlightenment Now, kind of covers all of these different areas. 
Excellent. Actually, that, that's a good, um, I'll derail here for a second, just because I'm curious. So I, I tend to be kind of almost comically uh, optimistic about the future <laughs> and certainly have been guilty of the uh, the Tyler Cowen kind of push on, hey, you can't just take this for granted that this is going to happen. It must be created. Um, but I tend to buy into Pinker's worldview. I tend to buy into kind of the Hans Rosling statistics, these kind of things. However, there is this kind of nagging doubt in the back of my mind that I'm worried that we're almost in this kind of like long-term capital management like moment of uh, especially like violence, decline in the world, increasing quality of life, et cetera. I mean, the last 50 years have been extraordinarily positive. I mean, the 50 years prior to that were extraordinarily destructive from a violence standpoint um, with World War One and World War II. Uh, and I guess now that we're into 2020, my timelines are a bit off, but close. How do you kind of steel man the, like, the best counter argument to this idea that you know, we we have made lots of progress over the last 300 years rather than saying, hey, just a, it's just a you know, time period of high variance and we're, we're in a particularly nice period right now. But when you start counting, turns out to matter a lot. First off, you know, the idea that we've made tons of progress certainly doesn't mean that it's smooth sailing from here on out or that we're just always going to keep making the progress. You know, just because we're brilliant at technology and science doesn't mean that we're brilliant at, you know, getting along or statecraft or avoiding war. Clearly we're not. I think one of the sort of the one of the biggest paradoxes of like the human race is that we have this amazingly advanced science and technology and our like moral technology and and political ability seems in some sense to be like lagging way behind. No, I still think there's been you know progress in um on that front if you look kind of, you know, broadly enough. If you look back 300 years, almost the entire world, maybe literally the entire world lived under some form of monarchy, right? Some form of kind of an absolute ruler, or if not quite an absolute ruler, you know, definitely it was, it was a world of kings and empires. And today, an enormous fraction of the world lives under this, you know, this almost new creation or this thing that was brought back into the world after thousands of years, which is this notion of a, a Republican form of government with democratically elected representatives. And, you know, that's a huge achievement. So I find it hard to, to really know what to think about the threat of war. You know, Pinker looks at this in his book, and he kind of says, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the world wars were really huge, but like, then there hasn't been like, you know, war has been declining ever since. And other people look at this and they're just like, well, it's just a lull until World War Three, which is going to be even huger and maybe wipe us all out. I honestly don't know what to think about all that. I certainly think it's possible. The fact that we could have World War Three tomorrow and it could wipe us all out, I, I don't think fundamentally changes actually the narrative that tons of progress has happened. It just means that we're not safe and secure. And I'll be the last person to argue that we are safe and secure. I think we actually live in a highly unstable world where the foundations in a certain sense of all of this progress have have rotted away. I feel like if we went and inspected the basement of, of human society, we would find termites. And that worries me deeply. Um, part of what I want to do, the motivation for this entire, for my focus on progress is to try to re-examine those foundations and, and strengthen them and shore them up. And I think that was part of what Pinker was trying to do in some of his books as well. In particular with Enlightenment Now, he said that, you know, we, there are people today who see the world as, as being in such a bad place and our institutions as being so rotten that they're just ready to burn it all to the ground. And he said, if you like, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> we need to reform our institutions, not abolish them or, or, you know, replace them from scratch. But to understand that, like to, to even get in the reformist mindset, you need to see how much good has actually happened and how well the institutions have worked, even if they 
they do have um, some major flaws, even if they do need to be reformed and revised and and taken forward uh, into the future. So, yeah, I'm not a Pollyanna by by any stretch of the imagination. I think the world is in a precarious place. I think there are some trends that are very negative. I certainly think the leadership, political leadership of this country has just kind of been slipping and sliding, you know, every every decade or every major, you know, presidential uh, election, it feels to me like we slip lower. So I'm not thoroughly positive in that sense, but I am sort of fundamentally positive on like the cap- the capabilities of the human race and our ability to get ourselves out of this mess and uh, figure it out and move forward. And I think the broadest sweep of human history shows that. And despite all of the problems of today, there's still no time in the past that I you know would rather live altogether. You know, all said. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that, and I, I tend to be pretty uh, sympathetic to the kind of the reform approach over the uh, you know the burn it all down and rebuild it. I can't remember the two intellectuals who kind of you know fought this out. I want to say during the French Revolution time period, but I certainly find myself more on the centrist reform side. I kind of find myself obsessed with the the concept of kind of the sine waves of history, and I think a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, you're approaching it like in a very kind of intellectually sound and interesting way. And I think you even you even highlighted it at the very start of this podcast of this idea of that that progress can be lost. And so if I look back at, you know, call it the last, let's call it the last 3000 years, you know, in the Roman empire, you know, at the, at the kind of towards the tail end of that, you would see a simpler, or you see a similar kind of asymptotic graph of like all of the amazing things that we're building and all the amazing improvements that are happening in culture and such. And then you lost it to the dark ages. Right. And I think you can, you can zoom in on any one of those and see, you know, smaller waves. Right. So my, my question about kind of world war two and violence, I think is an, is an example of that. As you're kind of looking at this kind of the, the foundations of progress, what have you seen be the things that are, you know, contributing factors or driving factors to, you know, increased capacity for progress? And what are the what are the termites? What are the things you're looking at and going, ooh, we really need to solve this? The biggest things I would say are not, in a sense, they're not super surprising. The Renaissance sort of coming out of a very religious and otherworldly perspective and bringing more attention and focus back on not the next life, but on this life, on this world, was important. The, 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 the scientific revolution, learning to observe the world carefully and systematically and mythology, uh, uh, methodically, the uh, later sort of you know quantitative revolution of looking to look at is learning to look at the world and look at science through the lens of mathematics and apply quantitative measurement and and math all of these things you know were built up and were part of it the very idea of progress itself the idea that we can actually do things better than any of our ancestors did before the idea that we ought to tinker that we ought to experiment and and sort of the combination of these you know one of the one of the okay so one of the things i've learned i would say is that a lot of maybe early developments in the industrial revolution did not uh say directly depend on scientific theories but were I think strongly influenced by scientific method and particularly the idea of being extremely systematic, meticulous in observation and record keeping, being quantitative in measurement and so forth. And so, you know, through methods like that, for instance, we got a lot of optimization in, say, water wheels uh, in the era of, you know, of water power, even though that wasn't that wasn't based necessarily on, you know, some new scientific theory. It was in many ways inspired by the work of scientists in centuries past. So I'm learning.
learning more, I would say, about the the details of the relationship, you know, b- between these things. How did science actually lead to technology? How did uh, the epistemology of science help lead to technology? I do think that, uh, you know, developments in, you know, politics as well, certainly the development of intellectual property, the development, which I'm just starting to dig into this now, the history of finance and the development of uh, ways to finance progress. That per- perhaps is another theme that I didn't expect to jump out so strongly, but in retrospect, it's it's not at all surprising that a lot depends on just how progress is financed. Where do you get the money for it? You got to pay for it somehow. Progress requires people's time, and those people have to be paid and make a living. Sometimes it requires materials and you know a lab or a workbench. And so the way I think that we fund progress has a lot to do with what types of progress gets made and how fast. And it's surprising sometimes how extremely promising. Or sorry, I'll say the early beginnings of technologies that turned out to be hugely impactful down the road had a hard time getting funded in their earliest uh, days. And so that makes me think that we need to look at how we do fund these things and what are the mechanisms uh, for them. Those are just, you know, those are some of the big themes that have come out. Presumptively, the with the kind of the funding side of things, you're interested in the kind of counterfactuals. So what might we have that got discouraged you know, by virtue of what we have that almost did? Is that accurate? Yeah. Or what could we have had, you know, much earlier, maybe, right? Decades earlier. What's an example of that? I mean, so I was surprised to learn that the the first prototype of the locomotive was demonstrated in the very early 1800s, I think around 1803-04. And the guy who built it was trying to get funding to build a railroad and couldn't. I tried a few times, never succeeded, and sort of put it on the shelf. And the golden age of railroads, I mean, you know, the real expansion of railroads was about, you know, it was like a generation later. It was around uh, 1829, 1830. It was really the 1830s that like a lot of railroad expansion uh, started happening. I mean, as late as 1829, people were still not, it was not generally agreed whether we should be driving our trains by locomotive engines or just by horses pulling the car along a track. So, I don't know, that's just one example that sticks out. Um, Another, one of my go-to examples for this is the development of penicillin, where Alexander Fleming noticed the action of penicillin, penicillin mold, in 1928, had an idea that, oh, this could make a good medicine somehow, couldn't figure out how to follow up on it, couldn't get the right collaboration with the right chemist or chemistry lab in order to kind of do the the right thing to take this mold and turn it into an actual viable medicine and just kind of published his findings and then turned to other things. And then years later, a lab, about a decade later, there was a different lab that, you know, found his paper in a, in a systematic survey. And uh, this was Howard Florey's lab in Oxford, found his paper and decided to follow up on it. And even then, like they had a hard time, that lab had a hard time getting funding. They were scraping together these donations of like a few hundred pounds, you know, here and there. And war interfered with that as well. So this was that was late 30s. And then, you know, in 1940, they wanted to go and sort of do trials. And they had a hard time finding a factory in Britain that could do uh, that would make the penicillin for them because uh, because it needed to be manufactured. But, you know, all the all the factories were busy making war materials. Another interesting theme, by the way, that I'm just sort of collecting examples of as I go through the research is the effect of war on progress. You know, there's this there's this meme that like war boosts progress. And I think it's very hidden to people all the ways that war actually harms progress and sets it back. So I've been kind of collecting these examples. Intuitively, at this point, do you believe that war is a net positive to progress or a net negative? Uh, no, I've never believed that. I think it's always been sort of obvious that it has to be a net negative. But I'm 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 trying to collect the examples <laughs> and show it. Yeah. 
I mean, in, I mean, in sheer cost of uh, of loss of life, it, it has to be quite quite brutal. Is it required? Like, so it's clearly negative, but is there is, is there this kind of shock to the system that's that's necessary for progress, or is the or is the myth or the kind of common story of the long peaceful growth actually something that's possible? I think long peaceful growth is absolutely possible. I think you know war is necessary for different reasons. War is necessary to resolve political conflicts that haven't you know that don't get resolved any other way. We needed a war to end slavery. Other wars have been needed to end tyranny and empires. I'm not saying every war is fought for good reasons. Many, many, many of them, most of them throughout history have have not. They've been senseless. But you know, but it does it does have a certain. It can have a certain purpose in certain cases. The best thing I will say for war is that it gives it lights a fire under people's feet. Right? It gives them a big kick in the ass to go work really hard. People get motivated, and they I would say they do a lot more. I don't, that doesn't justify war. It's not like, oh, great, let's go have a war in order to, you know, get people to like put in to work overtime. But, but it does have that effect. And so I think you can see that. But the sort of unseen effect is that it redirects people's attention. So it often causes them to abandon what they were working on before the war and then go work on some different thing. And so people look at World War II and they say, oh, look, because of World War II, we got, for instance, radar. The development of radar happened during and was motivated by World War II. And that's totally correct. You know, but then they miss things like, oh, did you know that Bell Labs was actually actively working on the transistor before World War II and then stopped for like five years and like put that on the shelf to work on war related things and then came back to it after World War II. And then we got the transistor in 1947. Right. So imagine if the war hadn't happened and among other good effects of not having war, we also got the transistor like five years earlier. And what effect would that have you know, had on the economy? So, yeah, there's the, it's the old rule from, I think it was Bastiat, about the seen versus the unseen. I like it. It's funny, as you're, as you're talking about kind of the impact of war, I'm abstracting it up a little bit to the impact of government. And I think that obviously government funding is at the, at the core of a lot of you know, non-economically obvious growth mechanisms early days. The Internet's the, the kind of primary obvious example for, uh, yeah. People like me, and actually, one of the things that I'm kind of interested in broadly is so I, I, I Teal and uh, and I, I never actually know how to pronounce his last name, but I think it's Eric Weinstein. Both have made this kind of you know, fairly aggressive statement of the the kind of loss of progress, and they they believe they've narrowed it down to like a five year period of time, which I believe is 67 to 72. And I think there's actually a very interesting point of view on that, which is that defense spending was dramatically cut during that time, which actually just like through the Boston and, uh, and and Bay Area kind of tech economies into chaos. Uh, there's a fantastic history book on this called The Code uh, that that mentions it. But one of the things that I'm I, I kind of notice from this is that there does appear to be a pretty clear kind of you know government will component to creating progress or the foundations for progress. I don't know if it's if it's the sole foundation possible, and I'm actually curious about your kind of. Uh, you know, enlightenment period example. And I don't know how much of that was government driven versus just purely cultural. Do you have a kind of a strong opinion or idea on the the role of government and the importance of government and whether it's a, you know, an ally or a necessary precondition or something along those lines? Not yet. I mean, so like, first, let me say the thing, and maybe this is, is obvious, but I think this really needs to be said, which is that the, like the most important role of government is creating law and order and sort of like a stable environment in which progress can happen. So that was absolutely needed. But when people talk about the quote, the role of government in progress, they're usually talking about like funding policies that are kind of directly designed to, you know, stimulate growth or something like the only I would say the obvious thing to say about that is that the government's command 
massive resources. And so they have the power to direct those resources and, uh, you know, make big things happen. They can't always make them happen exactly how they want. But so certainly, yes, government investment or funding or incentives or whatever has a massive potential to affect all kinds of different things. And technological progress is one of them. And it certainly has in terms of uh, you know, the enlight- I mean, some of these things go back, certainly, you know, all the way back to the age of discovery, right? Governments were funding voyages. Governments have just been intimately bound up in, you know, economic activity for pretty much forever. So, uh, I mean, even uh, going back, uh, I'm reading about the history of corporations right now and so forth. And, you know, a lot of early corporations had to be chartered by the government or they were, a lot of them were about trade. You know, go back to the uh, 16th, 17th century. A lot of the, a lot of the voyages, a lot of the, 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 efforts, the the companies were about, uh, let's organize ships and, and go on trading voyages. And and those things, I mean, governments completely wanted to control all of that. So you had to have a charter, you had to have approval and, you know, et cetera. There are some other things too. So like going back to that era, I'm thinking of, for example, one fam- one famous example is the longitude prize. So the, the, the problem of finding your longitude at sea was like a, a grand challenge problem of the 17th and 18th centuries. And there were a number of different uh, prizes uh, offered by governments, the most famous of which I think was from Britain. They had the the Longitude Prize. One interesting thing about the prize was not only was it this monetary reward for solving the problem, but the the Longitude Board that was created to uh, judge it also was given the power to give smaller amounts of money to people who had promising beginnings of a solution. And so in that sense, it kind of functioned as an early uh, DARPA, right? And as, an er- as an early, like, you know, research funding agency. And uh, the guy who kind of gets the most publicity for having solved this problem, John Harrison, who created the Marine Chronometer, um, he actually did come to them early on and got some money, you know, to, to fund some of his work by showing a promising beginning. So that sort of stuff can happen. The military's got a huge budget, certainly in America today. And if they decide they're going to fund something, then we get a ton of funding. Now, what exactly that means for like the proper and ideal role of government going forward, I don't know. And one thing I want to dig into in the future is just sort of all the dynamics around different types of funding. I think, you know, private investment versus private for-profit investment versus government funding. And even within government funding, you could split it into like military funding for military R&D versus something that's more just aimed at broad societal benefit versus private philanthropy. I think all of these things have their own sort of characteristics, their own pros and cons, their own, you know, way, uh, myopia and sort of blind spots. And I think it would be one one thing I'd love to do sooner or later is just kind of like a, a survey of all these different methods, what's been used throughout history, what they're good at, what they're not good at, what what the pitfalls of each one are. And I'd like to see whether we as a society actually have the right portfolio of funding method mechanisms. And maybe that's one of the best things or most useful things that can come out of my work or the progress studies, you know, idea more generally. In a world of like perfect data collection, because I feel like that's actually going to be the problem in running that analysis. What cut of that would you look at? Like how, how would you want to kind of analyze the question of do we have the right portfolio? Well, one thing I'd like to do is just sort of map out the space of these different things. So I think about these funding mechanisms on different axes, like what is the time horizon, right? You know, a, a VC investment needs to get paid back within about a decade, a, a loan from a bank sooner than that, 
a philanthropic investment in fundamental R&D, you know, maybe you're not looking for a return on that in less than a generation. So there's like different time horizons. There's different levels of risk tolerance, obviously, and that goes for both, you know, nonprofit and for-profit investments. I don't know. So there's there's kind of these different, uh, there's how much of the value can you capture, right? Are you actually looking for a profit, profitable return on this or or not? And so there's these kind of different axes. Uh, Like one thing I like to do is just maybe map out the space and and then look at okay how much money is currently going into every like point or sector within this space are there any that seem to be neglected and then maybe line that up with like different types of progress that needs to be made because some there some type of progress that needs to be made is super incremental near term and low risk some type that is is like very long term and very speculative and we need all of those like no no one type of progress in that area is like inherently better you know, than the other. We need them all. What What would neglected look like? Is that you know lack of dollars going in? Is that how, like I guess how do you balance the idea of there's not a lot of funding for that because it's not important versus there's not a lot of funding of that because we're fundamentally missing something? How would you identify neglected? I don't know, but I think if you could point to you know historical examples of well this type of progress uh, or this sector of the space or whatever has been super important in the past to see X, Y, and Z examples, but there's, you know, pathetically little funding for it. Uh, I don't know. I'll know better once I sort of get into the details. I'm, 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 I'm very out on a speculative limb right now. So Fair. We, we love speculation. The, uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the idea of, you know, when art patrons get together, they talk about art. When artists get together, they talk about where to buy cheap turpentine. And, and so I'm just curious, you know, like, what, like, where would you even look for the data for this? Like, that, that actually strikes me as almost impossible to find, and I just may not be aware of it. Yes. The one thing I've found is that the, yeah, the further back you, you, if you want to do any kind of a survey in history that goes back like very far, you just quickly run into a regime where there's not very good data or it gets super sketchy and everything's based on estimates and reconstructions and has huge error bars and stuff. So you just got to do the best you can. And fortunately, and this is, you know, this is again where I lean on academia. You know, you can find tons of research and people who've attempted to do these reconstructions. And in fact, you can find entire back and forth debates in the literature about how to interpret the sketchy data that we have. Or even the, sometimes there's huge debates back and forth about how to interpret the extremely good, <laughs> very detailed data that we have. So yeah, you just, you just gotta, you just got to find what exists and do the best you can. And it's, I mean, you, you made this comment early on that you just read, you know, 10 times what would, what any, uh, you know, reasonable human being would do. And so that, that's a, that's a, that's a deep dive in terms of, you know, how you start developing an intuition for this. What, what are your reading habits look like? Like what, what kind of papers are you searching for? Where are you finding good stuff? What's your, what's your average day look like from a, a you know, reading and source perspective? Like what does your research project uh, process look like? Yeah, Sure. I have fallen into uh, or I was settled on roughly a three week cycle where I spend about the first week just uh, so I'll pick a topic. I'll spend the first week just kind of reading uh, and researching, and the second week I'll start to draft, and I'll still end up doing a bunch of research to fill in gaps that uh, shown to me by the draft. And then you know the third week is kind of like revisions, editing, uh, addressing feedback, and probably still doing a little like more research, uh, and then polishing and, and publishing. That is an idealized process. I don't always hit that, but that's that seems to work well for me. I read a lot of books, so you know, often written by academics, but for a general audience. I have started to get back into, or sorry, not back into, get into uh, academic literature. 
I am uh, I am a total rookie at this stuff. I feel like you know I'm about as sophisticated as like a first year grad student, honestly, and I'm having to learn rapidly how to even do research. And so you know I've learned how to use Google Scholar and find papers and trace citations and you know that sort of thing. But that's that's still super new. The blog post that I just published, I guess, in the last week or so, was my first real foray digging into a bunch of academic papers and trying to interpret research. And it was the first blog post I put out that actually had like citations. So I'm learning. I'm getting better. I'm still a rookie. How do you get better at research? Like, is there is there something you found that has uh, made you a better grad student, to borrow the metaphor? I mean, so like anything else, you do it and and you struggle and you beat your head against the wall and you fail and you make mistakes and you get criticized. I am fortunate enough to have people around me who are better. My wife's a PhD and a postdoc. She gives me pointers Having gotten the grant from Tyler Cowen's Emergent Ventures, he is graciously very available to you know answer questions by email and kind of give me pointers, which he does. I have other folks like I have this overall sort of uh, challenge of isolation. I'm just I'm just a guy sitting in my living room and uh, I have no institution. I have sort of no structures around me, and so as I have done in the past when uh, I've been a startup founder. Or when, this is a whole tangent, by the way, when I dropped out of high school uh, in order to be like a self-schooler for a couple of years before I went to college, I've just had to create structure around me. And so I've been setting up uh, like monthly calls with uh, some of my best advisors. A good friend of mine is a PhD in philosophy, and he's been mentoring me a bit through just like general kind of how to understand and navigate academia. We had a whole fascinating conversation about footnotes and references and um, those kinds of things. And then I guess just like at a high level, you know, being very conscious of and shedding all my insecurities about the fact that I am a novice in this and knowing that I have a lot to learn. And so being sort of on the lookout for it. And every time I realize that I'm struggling or made a mistake or had a blind spot, I just go ask everybody who knows more than I do, like, hey, how do you do this? So like, so I published this recent blog post and like some people were criticizing my citations like, oh my God, I can't believe people are still citing this paper. Don't you know this was completely debunked? And like, and I'm like, oh, you know, hmm, I have no idea even like, like, how do you even look for that? I guess, you know, should I be like, and, and so this raised a question in my mind, like, hmm, should, is there like a specific thing I should do if I find a paper that looks good? Do I need to like go look at all the things that cite it? Or do I need to search for refutations or rebuttals or even see if it was retracted somehow? Like, you know, I, I don't know. This is a super basic question that I'm sure, you know, most people learn in their first like six months. Um, of grad school, and I'm having to learn these things. But when the question, as soon as the question comes to mind, I'll go ask like a bunch of people who know more than I do. Like, how do you do this? And of course, they don't even all say the same thing, which which reminds me that you know, in in a certain sense, none of us know what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. I I, I like the I like the idea of almost building, uh, you know, in a test driven development kind of style. It's like, oh, okay, I guess I need to build a test for that. Like, I didn't know that existed. So, okay, let me get, let me go figure that out. The folks at Our World and Data have been super helpful too. So, I mean, I'm doing tech consulting for them, but I'm, I'm grateful to them because uh, anytime I've got these kinds of questions, I can just post in Slack and like a bunch of these like PhD economists will come back and they'll be like, well, here's how I do it. So I've, I've got so many people who are willing to help me and I'm extremely grateful for that. There, there's about three for, uh, three threads that you opened there that I want to, uh, that I want to dive in on. But the, the first one is, and I want to kind of use this maybe as a chance to close out some of the more esoteric, you know, grandiose stuff and use the rest of the topic to, to go deep on things. You know, I, I would assume, and this is, uh, I, I say assumption here because I'm probably wrong, that somebody from kind of a, a Randian or objectivist background, somebody who seems to be uh, you know, pretty into like liberty and freedom and such, that there is this idea of like 
you know, the, the sovereign individual or things along that might be something you're empathetic to. And I'm actually curious about this idea of like the role of government versus the role of freedom. And I don't exactly know how to formulate this question other than um, if we really truly lived in, you know, a you know hard pivot to individualism and the sovereign individual and reduced government influence and impact and much more kind of individual freedom and liberty. Would would that decay progress? Would that help progress? Would that create some sort of uh, perverse outcome that that you know would be hard to for those of us that may not be as versed in it to to yeah you know, figure out or 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 strategy you know, kind of think about? Um, well, I don't think so. <laughs> so let's see. So for uh, so I'll address I'll address two parts of that. So first, just in terms of like government today. So like my hunch, and this is, you know, of course, if strongly influenced by my sort of, you know, ideological biases and, and priors is that there's sort of, we have today too much kind of regulation and bureaucracy and sort of too much wealth is kind of sucked up and probably spent wastefully by the government. And so, you know, my hunch is that we, there could be, you know, major improvements on sort of both of those, like the regulatory state and the welfare state, that both of those things are putting a damper on progress and um, and that there's significant room for improvement there. But like a, a huge motivation for this entire project for me was to kind of re-examine the foundations of my worldview and in many ways to challenge it and, and to challenge those foundations. I came at this, I got, I got interested in, in progress, it, it, a number of different things that converged on this for me, but I would say the single biggest is feeling that the story of this keen appreciation for the story of human progress was very much at the foundation of my worldview and was my ultimate explanation for why I care about things like free markets and why I care about intellectual property and why I care about the way that society views inventors and founders and and business leaders. You know, if you asked why do all these things matter? Why do you, you know, why do you debate these things? Why do you care passionately about them? Uh, why do you want to help influence the world? Like it, it all came back to, well, I see the story of human progress. I care about it. I think this is what is needed to uh, keep it going. And so I just one day I said to myself, well, if I if that's what I believe, I should go study the story of human progress itself and see, just go directly to this thing that I say is the most important thing. And I should double check and I should see if my views actually do support it. And I should see if there's anything else that's not in my purview that's even more important and just come to a, a better rounded, more nuanced and much more grounded in empirical reality perspective. Awesome. Can, can, actually, can we use this to do like a lightning round of how you would attach to ideas that other people might be familiar with? So like, let's call it kind of, you know, 60 seconds or less. I'll give you a couple of prompts of uh, what's your relationship to this this theory and this concept so people can start, you know, it's very hard to put, I think, folks like you and I into a ideological camp. So maybe where you agree and where you disagree will, will help people you know, map you out a little bit better. Sure. I'm happy to do that with the caveat that my relationship to many ideas right now is probably, quote, it's complicated. <laughs> I'm in this, I'm in this, I'm on this intellectual journey right now. I'm in this space of re-examining everything and figuring everything out. So like, but yeah, sure. I'm game. I think that's uh, maybe even more interesting. So uh, neoliberalism. Sympathetic would have to maybe define exactly what that means. But yeah, I don't know, broadly sympathetic. Randian objectivist. Yeah, strongly sympathetic and like highly influenced from my background. Yeah, I think there's I think it's that's sort of underrated, maybe underappreciated. But again, this whole journey is like looking at everything else in the world and trying to synthesize a broader picture. Where do you where do you disagree with those two? And I think those are both 
to some degree diametrically opposed, but not directly, or maybe maybe they're slightly orthogonal. So interesting that you're sympathetic to both. Oh, interesting. How would you define neoliberalism or characterize it? It's a very good question, maybe where the maybe where the disconnect is happening. But but frankly, I think the like broadly the idea of globalism is is in my mind tied to neoliberalism. And when I think about kind of objectivism, I, I think a little bit more about kind of you know freedom of individual and uh, and far less kind of you know globalism sympathetic. Okay, so the resolution of the paradox there is, yeah, so I am an individualist. I also am in favor of what I think of as globalism. So I don't see those two as in contradiction at all. Uh, So to my mind, globalism is the phenomenon of all of us becoming uh, like relationships, especially economic relationships, but all kinds of human relationships and culture and communication, just becoming more global as transportation and communication technologies have become better and more efficient and cheaper. Just the world is connected now. But to my mind, you know, being an individualist doesn't mean being anti-connection. It really, like, human connections, they're the most potentially valuable and the most potentially destructive thing in the world. So they're in, in a sense, other, you know, other humans are like the most significant thing in the world, even to an individualist. To my mind, individualism is more about those connections being chosen and being mutually beneficial and about having the notion that each individual has a moral or that, that the moral purpose of an individual's life is to pursue his or her own happiness not to, you know, as, as opposed to uh, the idea that we're all sort of maybe inherently like morally bound to each other and under some obligation, you know, a, an individualist has many relationships, but also feels free to part ways when that is sort of, you know, the best thing. Far more autonomy, individual autonomy. So going back to the lightning round, uh, collectivism. Yes. The, the scourge of our era. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> <laughs> I think collectivism, to, to my mind, means this uh, sort of perspective that we as individuals don't really count, maybe aren't even truly real, that we are merely cells as, as part of a super organism, and that the, you know, your, your moral responsibility is ultimately to, you know, give up uh, what is best for yourself and kind of, you know, sacrifice yourself to the greater good, to, to the broad collective. And I think it's simply wrong. I also think that that philosophy has been used to justify some of the worst evils of the 20th century. Fascinating. Uh, what about the concept of the singularity? It's either, I don't know, I mean, I haven't read that much about it, but it always seems like just like slightly too far out speculative futurism. As much as I am interested in the future, I don't like the label of futurist, and I'm not totally sure what a futurist means. I think it's super important to think about the far out future, but also like we just have to be a little careful about like going into uh, speculation that is so wild that it kind of becomes meaningless and, and useless. Three more odd ones that I think will be uh, riskier. The intellectual dark web. I haven't figured out what that exactly is. To some extent, I guess I see it as maybe a reaction against some of the wokeness in the culture. And in that sense, I'm sympathetic, but I don't even know all the people who are supposedly a part of it. And I certainly don't think I agree with all of them. Probably have some fundamental disagreements with many. So yeah, I, I don't really know. I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, you, gave me, you gave me an interesting, another one, which is wokeness and cancel culture. Yeah, I'm worried about it. I think it's I think it's not good. I think I see two fundamental worldviews as being opposed. One is this notion that we are fundamentally by nature 
split into identity groups based on these unchosen attributes of you know race and sex and or, um, orientation and all kinds of other and uh, of, uh, all kinds of other things, and that these groups are fundamentally uh, locked in an eternal power struggle, and this is just like the nature of society. And all we can do, you know, you can never resolve the power struggle or come to any kind of a harmony or a universality. The only thing you can ever do is like adjust the balance of power. And so then the fundamental like moral imperative becomes to reallocate power and influence to, you know, groups that have less of it. And you do that by any means necessary. That's how I sort of see that worldview. And I disagree with that. I have it my so the worldview I would contrast that with is a sort of universalist one that says, look, actually, we're all humans. Yes, there are these differences in our attributes, both chosen and unchosen, but these do not have to splinter us into kind of groups that are locked in perpetual warfare. We can kind of, we can learn how to get along and we should, we would all do better to adopt a more universalist sort of humanistic perspective that sees us, you know, all as fundamentally the same thing. We're all human beings and we should learn to see each other more as individuals you know, and and take a more yeah, universalist kind of human rights perspective. So, uh, you know, that's the perspective I think we need to actually achieve, you know, harmony among different peoples and groups. And I see woke culture and cancel culture as actively establishing foundations to make that impossible. Got it. You know, it's funny because I, I see an interesting point, which is I think you've, you've done a good job of kind of resolving the paradox, as you said, of you seem to be interested in community, but from an individualistic standpoint, right? So this idea of chosen community rather than than kind of expected, you know, communal sacrifice. Yeah. Individualism doesn't mean like being a hermit. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't even mean being an introvert. Yeah. No, no, I, I 100% agree. And, and actually, my question on this is when you think about a population of you know, 7 billion people, are there, are there necessary preconditions or things that we can give people that make it possible for them to, you know, be, be granted more individual liberty and agency and, and then make them more likely to use that in a way that is communally beneficial rather than trying to force kind of, you know, communal norms as a, as a path towards harmony or universalism, as you put it. I mean, I think the most important thing is, just a fundamental shift in perspective. I think for most of human history, people did not have this kind of universalist perspective. They very much saw their nation, their race, their tribe, their family, their group, their town, you know, what their religion, like whatever it was, they kind of saw that as there's like a, a very much an us versus them perspective that I think was just maybe very natural, maybe just grew out of earliest, you know, human societies and tribes maybe we just evolved out of a tribalist perspective and we've we've had to like very slowly gradually laboriously escape it so i think that shift in perspective is is important i don't know a lot about how that shift was actually made pinker uh, touches on it in some ways i think part of it was the, the you know the enlightenment being the application of reason to every area of human life and you know the more that we we decided to use reason the more reason sort of as a as a ruling uh, you know paradigm demands universal explanations. There's actually some good stuff about this in David Deutsch's book, To the Beginning of Infinity, where I believe it was, where he talks about, you know, there was this period where people demanded universality of their theories and explanations as like a condi- as like a thing they sought. And in fact, a sort of thing they, they, they needed as a condition to be true. But I think that, you know, that perspective comes from applying, applying reason to every area uh, of the world. 
So that was really important. There are kind of concrete things as well. Pinker in uh, one or both of the books, Better Angels and Enlightenment Now, points out the, the effect of like, novels. And so like the rise of the novel as a, as a form of art and kind of like more literacy and people reading stories, just like that fiction has this ability to put you in someone else's shoes or show you the world from someone else's viewpoint. And that's the kind of thing I think that can be super powerful to help open up people's perspectives. So what, what I'm hearing from that is a two foundational elements uh, maybe the, like just reason as a as a form of thinking and and empathy and that empathy as a you know, literacy seems seems to be abstracted up to empathy in in the way you just told that story. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. Cool. Well, I, so I, I could do the uh, this is interesting to me and probably no one else. So I won't I won't go farther on that. But there's a whole podcast episode of just you know how do you think about these uh, these different areas because I think you've got some interesting thoughts on them. I'm curious to bring this back to some of the more kind of personal stuff you said earlier. You mentioned that you're kind of heavy on mentorship, asking for help, talking to people about how they solve problems, etc. What are maybe like you know three or five things that you've learned? from your wife on how to how to be a better researcher. I'm trying to remember now exactly what things I learned from which people, but certainly just like, you know, even stuff stuff on the ground, like how do you, uh, how do you search Google Scholar? <laughs> what do you look for? You know, what do you look through? You know, how do you check out citations? Some kind of things like that. My wife does statistics, so I also just sort of, you know, pay a lot of attention to her opinions on like data analysis. Every once in a while, she'll harp on something enough over enough of a period of time uh, that it'll actually drill its way through my thick skull. And, you know, so like one thing, okay, I honestly don't know if this has even exactly been relevant to any of the stuff that I've done, but it's definitely a thing that I've gotten into my head is lately she's been thinking a lot about like within subject variation versus between subject variation and how that affects um, studies that people do. And, you know, people will will do a study that and they'll look at variation across subjects, but they won't and, and they won't look at variation within a subject. And then they might even go apply apply their conclusions to within subject variants, and it, they actually got it completely backwards because of some sort of Simpsons paradox. So I think that's getting sort of off the central topic, but that's, I, I do absorb things from, you know, listening to her talk about her work and and her, the thing about a statistician, you know, is you get to criticize everybody else's research. So I hear I hear critiques, especially about quantitative stuff. Yeah, there's a, uh, a good analogy to the, I believe it's the Lorites in Stevenson's book about the, uh, the clock, which I'm forgetting the name of right now. But this kind of idea of like, you know, somebody to, somebody to challenge your assumptions at every point is, uh, is quite helpful. The analogy that I make for people in, in tech is it's, it's, it's analogous in my mind to uh, people who work in security. So like, you know, if you're the, uh, I mean, it's like software security, right? So if you're the, if you're the software security expert at a company, your job, unfortunately, is to tell everybody how they're stuck. They can't do their thing the way they want to do it. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's not going to work or that's going to subject you to this risk that you might not see right away. But someday, if you don't listen to me, it's going to blow up. And so instead, you have to go back and do it this much harder way which might not get you the outcome you want. And then like nobody wants to listen to you, right? And when you succeed, often it's, you know, your success is invisible, right? Because it's the it's the catastrophe that didn't happen is like your greatest achievement. So it's kind of this perpetually underappreciated role. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Well, we, we've got it. We got a. We made an Anathem reference, uh, information security reference. We could easily go down a Taleb black hole. So this is probably the the most interesting ninety seconds of the interview. I'm, I'm curious. Look, starting a movement is hard, and choosing to do the thing that you've done is hard, and it's very counter to what you've done in the past seventeen years prior, right? I and I'm curious, kind of, how do you? What are the like the the kind of nuggets of motivation that keep you going? Like, what's the what's the good stuff that happens that that makes you believe that you're kind of you're getting signal that you're onto something that's worth continuing to go down? 
fundamentally the reaction of my audience has been super encouraging you know the the growth of my website the my email list my twitter following and just the feedback that i get from people uh, the feedback from people who just you know who tell me how much they like my work how much they've learned from it how much they you know wished they could do something like this or had a, a similar uh, you know impulse and the fact that i get this actually from even from you know some experts in the field so i would say one thing that was super motivating was last summer there was this key moment last summer, two weeks before Tyler and Patrick's article about progress studies came out, I had my first breakout blog post, which was about the history of the bicycle. I asked this question on Twitter, why was the bicycle not invented until like the late 1800s? And a bunch of people replied and had theories and I got super intrigued and I ended up researching it and writing it up. And I wrote this blog post and, you know, and I hit publish and it's one of these, you never know what's going to go viral. And somehow this was the one it got posted to Hacker News. It hit number one on Hacker News like over a weekend or on a Monday or something. And then it just went viral from there. And like Kotke picked it up and like, you know, a number of people retweeting it. And I suddenly, you know, my email subscription list like 10x at that point. I mean, from a super low base, I had like, I don't know, I had like maybe 50 email subscribers or something before that. And then all of a sudden I had like several hundred. So that was, uh, that was super encouraging. And like, you know, when Tyler Cowen uh, came across it, he put it in Marginal Revolution links list and it was like the number one link of the day and said recommended. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is cool. I think Anton Howes, who's an ec economic historian in the UK who I admire and does really good work. I think he also, you know, put it out there. Noah Smith, who is a very popular, you know, economist on, on Twitter, found some other of my blog posts and about the relationship of science to the Industrial Revolution and actually tweeted out a few links and mentioned that it had changed his mind on an argument he'd had with someone about a month before. And so I thought, wow, okay, here are these people who are actually professionals at this and they're finding at least some value in my work that I'm doing as a hobby. You know, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe I've got something here. So yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff that keeps me going, I guess. You know, it's funny. I, I, whenever I talk to somebody who who you know is deep in the act of creation, as I would actually characterize what you're doing is, oftentimes the stuff that gets attention is not the stuff they think is their best work. Um, is there is there a dissonance there? Do you have a yeah you know, the stuff that goes viral is that also the stuff that's your best work? Um, <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, so the funny thing about the bicycle post is one of my most popular. It's also, in my opinion, like not the not by any means the least, like the most important topic I've touched on, right? Like the bicycle, you know, it was a great invention, but hey, if we didn't have it, it's not like, it's not like the bicycle like changed the world the way that say electricity did or steel did, right? And so it is funny to me that people maybe sometimes get more intrigued by these like slightly more obscure or like just quirky, I would say, questions and, and technologies. But some of the most important stuff also I would say gets popular. So I don't feel like some strong disconnect, but it's definitely true. You can never predict what's going to go viral. That's, uh, that's some very complex system. And there's, I think a lot of randomness in it as well. What do you think your, uh, your best work is to date? My history of smallpox, uh, I was pretty proud of. I went pretty deep on that one. It's one of the longest posts I've written, maybe the longest to date. And I think it told a pretty clear story and probably surfaced some details that, uh, maybe even people somewhat familiar with the story uh, hadn't seen. I was also able to kind of do an analysis section towards the end where I touched on some big themes that I think are pretty interesting. So that might be one of my favorites. Yeah, post titled Slaying the Speckled Monster. It's kind of the history of history of smallpox and the origins of vaccination. Yeah, you'll, you'll still do a good job of kind of humanizing or, or connecting that. I, one of the stories I think I'm recalling there is like a lot of the names from history we remember is, you know, we're... we're 
you know, suffered from smallpox and survived. So what, you know, what happens if they had died, these kind of things? Yeah. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, both, uh, both survived smallpox. Washington, when he was about 19, Lincoln amazingly contracted it right around the time of the Gettysburg Address. I think he might've been even suffering from it at the, at the time, or maybe it was incubating or something. And I think it was right before the Emancipation Proclamation. So you just think, oh my God, you know, these, these what, you know, what if either of them had died of the disease? How much would U.S. history be different? Would we even have a U.S.? Yeah, the interesting counterfactual difference of, yeah, well, maybe yes, maybe somebody who stepped in would uh, would have been fine. I'm actually not, it's been too long since I've read Team of Rivals. I have no idea what the vice president's politics were at that time. <laughs> Although, actually, that from a chaos perspective, Lincoln's White House was probably the least predictable what would have happened after his death. So interesting nonetheless. You know, when you think about this, this kind of, you know, building progress studies, what do you hope your contribution is to it, or what do you hope the movement is in five or 10 years? What are you kind of driving towards? What's the objective function here? I can answer the first a little bit better, but I'll answer both. So in terms of my work, like, you know, the biggest sort of long-term vision is that I, I hope to get one or two big new ideas out into the world and the culture and sort of make them stick. I want to help people appreciate progress as such. I want people to understand how far we've come. I think people take progress for granted. They take our modern standard of living for granted. They don't know what a struggle it was, what an achievement it was. They don't know how bad things were just decades, let alone centuries ago. You know, I talked to one person who was like a little skeptical about progress. And I said, well, just think about the difference between life today, you know, between life now and in, say, the year 1700. You know, what what comes to mind? And the only thing that came to mind uh, for her was, uh, she said, well, I know medicine's a lot better. Improvement in medical technology. <laughs> yep, silence. Like, that was the only thing, you know, and I, okay, well, you're missing about 90, you know, plus percent of it, right? You're just, you don't have, there's a much richer more nuanced uh, perspective to have here. So I want people to understand and appreciate how far we've come, understand that it was not just like some automatic, inevitable, natural thing, that it, that it came about because of effort and struggle and vision and courage. And that, you know, this the world we live in is a gift and that we should appreciate it and not take it for granted. That's the most important thing. Give us the laundry list of things that we should appreciate of what we've gained in the last 300 years. Oh, my. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that we, you know, that we live in stable, sturdy houses that are well insulated, that we have heating and air conditioning and and, and can be comfortable and safe in, in all weather. The fact that we can travel around our town and around the world in speed, safety and comfort. The fact that it no longer takes six months to get, you know, from San Francisco to New York. And by the way, you used to be that you were risking your life to even make that journey. The fact that if we are distant from our loved ones, we can still connect with them. We can see their faces and hear their voices almost no matter where they are in the world in real time. And if they come down with a disease, you know, we can hear about it instantly and rush to their side to be with them, even if they have mere days to live, you know, as opposed to maybe hearing about their death months later because a letter had to get on a ship and cross the Atlantic. The fact that those uh, actually instances of people catching diseases and suddenly being dead days or weeks later is extremely rare compared to what it used to be. The fact of, of, of life expectancy, the fact that we, that our children, you know, usually don't die so much anymore. It used to be that half of all children died by the age of five. And it was very common to lose, uh, you know, and, and even many of them in infancy, you know, to the point where, uh, you know, babies weren't even necessarily named right away. You know, sometimes you held off a little bit to see if they survived. 
the fact that we that you can get up, you know, if you were up in the middle of the night and you want to hear your favorite music performed by the greatest artist who ever performed it, that you can just do that at the flick of a switch or, you know, the tap of a button. I mean, I, you know, I, I could go on and on, but there's so many, you know, different things. The fact that we can eat fresh fruit and vegetables year round in this variety from all over the world, right? We're not constrained to like what we could grow in our local neighborhood that season. The fact that we have reliable food sources, the fact that, you know, obesity is a bigger problem than starvation and, and famine in, in, you know, at least in, in, uh, in many parts of the world. The fact that we don't all have to be farmers anymore, right? The fact that we are freed to do all kinds of, you know, a variety of jobs and interesting work. The fact that, you know, people can earn a living now largely independent of whether they have physical uh, capacity to do so, right? That that manual labor is not the only way to earn your living. So if you are, for whatever reason, weaker or frail or bedridden or, you know, just not the strongest person on the block, you can, you can still earn your living. Yeah, I could go on for the rest of the hour. But there's so many things and so many ways that our, that our world has gotten better. What are the downsides of progress? What have we given up? I don't think there are downsides per se, but I certainly think there are risks. And I think progress is messy. It's it's not a simple, linear, monotonic, always increasing, always getting better. It has risks. It has, you know, there are huge bumps in the road. There are detours and backtracks. There's all kinds of, you know, anytime we anytime we discover new technology, we're, we're you know, potentially playing with fire. We never know how something is going to create new risks from the, you know, the automobile, which obviously led to new ways to have crashes and, uh, you know, to the x-ray, which was a you know, brilliant um, scientific discovery and medical invention, but then, whoops, turned out to kill people, to things that turned out to be so bad that we literally just rolled them back, like, you know, putting cocaine in soda it used to be a good idea, um, or, you know, used to be a common idea, turned out never, it was not a good idea. We rolled that one back. You know, so like all kinds of, all kinds of things. And of course, as technology goes on, you know, we, we have better and better ways to oppress people. We have better and better ways to kill people, you know, potentially to kill all of us. So yeah, there are all those problems, but just like progress on the whole, I think has been so amazingly, unequivocally, clearly like net beneficial. I wouldn't call those things downsides. They're, they're risks and problems, risks to be avoided and mitigated and problems to be solved. Is there an inherent, and you're talking specifically about the kind of you know, technology and industrial pro- progress in, in at least some of those examples. Is there like an inherent morality to those items? Are they inherently positive? I, you've, you've said that the, the progress is, is inherently positive, uh, or at least I, I've interpreted that. Is, there an, is that because of the inherent morality of progress and invention, or is that because it is a neutral force that amplifies our inherent morality? I mean, so there's an important perspective from which maybe the most important perspective on technology is that technology itself is not moral or immoral, right? It's a power and we can use the power for good or evil. And maybe almost every technology can be used for good or evil. I I don't know. But on the whole, like, so that's one perspective and that's an important perspective. But there's, but the other perspective is that technology overall is extremely good because the net benefit, the net effect has been this, you know, huge benefit to humanity. Does it logically follow from that, that, that humans are inherently positive or moral in some way, given that the, the force that drives progress is 
not inherently moral, it's amoral, yet the outcome seems to be positive. Yes, I would say it's the same thing. Like, not just analogous, it's just, it's probably just a different perspective on the same thing. Like, humans have the capacity for good or evil. And history has demonstrated enormous capacity for both. We're certainly, you know, by no means do we uh, automatically get things right or do the right thing. And we're capable of enormous destruction. But again, on the whole, like, so like, I'm very aware of the, of that potential for humans individually and collectively to go either way. But also I just, uh, I remain fundamentally optimistic and sort of fundamentally positive on the potential of humanity and on, you know, really how much good we've done uh, so far. And so, you know, even though it's possible we could wipe ourselves out or short of that could, you know, set ourselves back a thousand years and and cause an enormous amount more suffering, I, I don't think... It's inevitable, and I am trying to help us avoid it. One of the things I like about the the kind of position you're taking here is that you don't seem to be kind of blindly optimistic and firmly in you know one camp or the other. You're certainly the antithesis of a Luddite, I would say, but that doesn't mean that you're not looking at things and saying, oh yeah, there's some stuff we should roll back, or, <laughs> or there's some unintended consequences here that we need to address. Blind optimism is not useful. I, I'm, I'm optimistic, but uh, you know, real, realistic, realistically optimistic. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is actually one of the most interesting interesting things about human progress in my mind is that it seems to follow this path of of invention, positive consequence, unintended negative consequence, reaction, and then it settles into a, a stasis that is you know, has pros and cons, but usually the pros outweigh the cons, right? You mentioned the the kind of farming, uh, uh, you know, hey, we don't have to all be farmers. I actually think the clearest example of this is the kind of invention of agriculture. It actually you know, reduced, you know, human diet, human health, all of these things kind of early on, then net, turned into a net positive as we kind of learned to deal with those things. And it's now created, you know, parts of our culture that are like firmly rooted in the foundation that you could say are good or bad. In fact, I'd argue kind of patriarchal lineage, lineage stems from uh, the, the kind of drive of the, the creation of agriculture. And I'm just kind of curious as, uh, as, as to how you think of you know, finding those things earlier, predicting them earlier, is this even possible? Like, how do we make sure that progress is generally moving, you know, towards a more positive outcome earlier in the process rather than just trusting the process? Is that possible? Yeah, sure. I think that's one of the things that ought to come out of progress studies is we ought to be looking at these, you know, risks, unintended consequences, you know, downsides that need to be mitigated. And we should ask exactly those questions. How do we find these things earlier? How do we mitigate them faster? How do we all, you know, deal with them? And I think we can find that through a study. Now, I haven't done, I, I rattled off a few examples. Those are sort of, that's sort of the outline in the back of my head of like a, a research project I'd like to do at some point, but I haven't done yet. Is like, let's just look into, yeah, what are some of the worst unintended consequences? I think there's a whole like history of safety perhaps to be, you know, to be explored. I haven't done that yet. So first off, just recognizing this pattern is like the first thing, right? I think that, I think you described the pattern pretty well. You do a thing, it's got good consequences. Whoops, it has unintended consequences. Okay, let's mitigate. And so I I think the first step is just recognizing that pattern. And then there's probably some sort of overall like response pattern that we can design and like deliberately. So like we can get less reactive maybe and learn more to anticipate things. And honestly, I see this happening in the world already. A good example is genetic engineering. So, you know, we're, we're going into, we're, we're on the the cusp of this world where we're going to be able to do amazing things, I think, with um, with biotech and, and genetic engineering, broadly speaking, obviously this has some potential risks. So you like it in a, you know, a sense, it's very good that everybody's thinking about this now. 
And uh, I heard a good talk at the Long Now Foundation by uh, Renee, I might be mangling the pronunciation, Wegerson, who is a DARPA program manager, and she spoke about gene safety. And I think that was the thing she was doing at, at DARPA. So first off, the talk was about um, what can we do, knowing that there are risks to genetic engineering, like what are some of the ways that we can engineer safety into it from the beginning? And an example she gave was, so there's this technology uh, of a gene drive where you basically can propagate a gene through a population like very quickly. I don't totally understand how it works. I'm not a biologist, but you know, more quickly than it might just sort of the gene might naturally evolve. You can come up with some way for it to just like spread to all of the descendants. And and in, in a population that uh, reproduces very quickly, you know, has a sort of a short generational span, like for instance, mosquitoes, you could drive some gene thread that entire population, say a way to turn off the mosquito's ability to transmit malaria or, you know, yellow fever. Um, so that would be huge for humanity. But obviously, this thing has risks, right? So one of the things she talked about was, okay, can we control it? Like when we put a gene drive out there, is it just whoops, well, we've let loose the monster and now it's completely uncontrolled? Or, you know, can we can we put controls on it? Is there a stop button? Are there brakes on this thing? Right? Can we can we stop the car? And she made this great analogy to cars. She says, look, why do you put brakes on a car? You don't put brakes on a car in order to drive slowly and carefully. You put brakes on a car so you don't have to drive slowly. You put brakes on a car so you can go fast and yet keep it safe, right? Because you know you can stop when you need to. And so that was kind of the analogy she was making. I think that's a great, like, super healthy viewpoint, right? That says, yeah, we want to go fast, but we want to go fast safely. <laughs> so let's start thinking about that ahead of time and engineering, you know, engineering this into our things. Uh, you know, and there's people thinking about this for AI now too, right? And like, I don't, I don't totally know what to make of all of that. Um, and I haven't dug into it, but like, there's certainly some people, some serious people who are thinking a lot about, well, what could go wrong with AI and how do we mitigate that? Yeah. I, I, I love Renee's example on, on kind of uh, power and control. If you have more control, you can, you can have more power and certainly shout out to, uh, to the long now, which I think is, basically served as an intellectual ally to an incredible you know, number of important uh, kind of intellectual fields or studies or endeavors. I mean, actually, the the example that Renee gave, I think, kind of harkens back to a, a Stuart Brand quip of, uh, you know, hey, we, we are we have the power of gods, we should we should get good at it, you know. <laughs> so that, that makes a lot of sense. Let me let me go back to progress studies. What is what does progress studies need more than anything right now? What's the rate limiting uh, or the limiting reagent that uh, that that progress studies would just you know explode if it was given. I think uh, progress studies is information and is taking a little time to come together, and I actually think that's a good thing. It probably does need to converge around some idea of what it is all about. I have you know so just as one example, like um, there are different kinds of progress. There's you know intensive and and extensive progress, right? There's like zero to one kind of on the frontier, inventing new things, and then there's like distributing that to the entire world. And I've I, there are people within the movement who focus a lot on one versus the other, or who even would like define progress studies as being about you know just one of those. My view is that both of those are important and should be included. So that's just like one sort of example of you know ways in which I think we we need to kind of converge on on what we. Mean mean here. Um, I think what it really needs, and maybe uh, some folks who are involved in this will get in place um, in 2020, is some institutions. Uh, and I mean that very broadly, like if there were a, a conference a progress conference, a progress journal, and that could be academic or not, you know, a progress magazine, a 
a progress institute, some sort of research lab or think tank, uh, uh, some progress, uh, you know, program within a university or, you know, chair or fellowship or, you know, anything. All of those things or, you know, some some collection or some subset, if not all of those things together, I think, would really sort of solidify it and make it a thing that would grow and persist and, you know, sustain itself and not just uh, peter out. You know, when you talked about interdisciplinary field kind of early on when I was trying to cast this as an academic field, uh, which I'll somewhat stand by. But the the thing that immediately came to mind was the Santa Fe Institute. And it sounds like you're kind of thinking of something moderately similar, like something that can convene people from different areas and different, different kind of focuses inside of this to to start leading to more collaboration. Is that accurate? Maybe, yeah. I'm not, I've heard of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm not super familiar, so I can't comment on how close it is, but yeah, maybe. Fair. Well, I'll, I'll pick up on a different thread then, which is you, you talked about the concept of kind of intrinsic versus extrinsic. And I'd actually, I'd, I'd tie that somewhat of, you know, uh, intrinsic progress is far closer, I think, to technology and industrial progress. I think that's the, the process of invention broadly. In society and governance, uh, I think that's that's closer to extrinsic. Uh, and and I think, yeah, I'm 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 painting with a broad brush there. There's certainly types in each, but I feel like they're more aligned in those camps. And going back to this point of you know 68 to 72 or 67 to 72 being kind of a point where tech tech progress slowed down, at least if you believe that. Um, I think actually that's also not wildly off the point where kind of extrinsic society and government's uh, progress kind of picked up. We had a lot more globalism, a lot more anti-poverty, a lot more kind of global economic, uh, kind of economic movements that ended up creating a lot of, of really powerful outcomes, um, lifting you know, a billion plus people out of poverty, for example. I'm super naive on this and I'm, you know, I'm pulling this from four or five books. Like, where am I wrong there? What nuance do I not understand? I don't know. I haven't gotten into the like a detailed look at the last half of the 20th century. I've been, you know, I've been sort of broadly covering like all of, you know, sort of all of human progress and sort of history, you know, across across history. So a lot of stuff ends up, my stuff ends up getting concentrated in like 18th and 19th centuries, maybe a little bit in the 20th. So I don't know, maybe, maybe you're totally onto something. I mean, the thing that I think of when I hear, you know, when I think about the, like the late 60s is this was also a time of, I believe, changing cultural attitudes towards progress. Up through the 50s, it seems to me, just anecdotally, we were like, Pretty, still pretty like overall gung-ho about progress, positive on it, excited. And then in the 60s, that maybe kind of seemed to change. And certainly by the end of the 60s into the 70s, it feels like you had the rise of the strong environmentalist movement, which had maybe different parts to it. But one part of it is what Pinker describes as kind of romantic greenism that's, you know, like a quasi-religion that, you know, that actually ends up setting itself against technology and against humanity in many ways. And so I think, you know, certainly not everybody uh, signed on to that program, but I think it started to have an effect on the broader culture. And today, you know, again, just anecdotally, it seems to me that since about then, views of the future and views of progress and views of human nature have just been kind of getting increasingly pessimistic and dystopian. And so I I just, I just have to think, I, I don't have any proof of this. This is really strongly just influenced by my biases and priors, but I just have to think that that affected people somehow. And within a generation, you know, if the generation, if the new generation is not, is, is hearing that actually we're destroying the earth and not, you know, what they heard in the 19th century, which was let's transform the earth and, and reshape it uh, to, to fit our needs. I just got to think that's got some sort of influence on, you know, who goes into different fields to actually push humanity forward and, and, you know, how much energy and courage they bring with it. 
I wonder how much of that is realism because I mean, technology remains a wildly optimistic thing and a, and a wildly trusted thing. Like areas where there are progress are celebrated and you know kind of trusted. At least if you if you look at like you know Pew studies and you trust those and these kind of things. I actually sense that there's optimism around areas where there is progress. What I what I sense is that progress has kind of decayed on some of these fronts, which has led to more cynicism and pessimism. Am I off here? Or is there an interesting thread to pull on there? So I suspect that the relationship is reciprocal. People's ideas about progress affect whether they go and try to make any and also affect how they interpret whatever happens, good or bad. And then what happens also then goes and feeds back into people's ideas about progress. And that's sort of re and whether it's positive or negative, it's kind of a reinforcing cycle. If you believe in progress, then you go make, you know, you go out and you you put effort into making more progress, and then it actually happens. And whatever happens, you sort of tend to interpret in a light that's favorable and positive to progress. And any, you know, setbacks you see as mere setbacks. Whereas if you're negative, then again, you you interpret everything that happens negatively in sort of a most pessimistic light, and you just like, you know, you just stop putting as much effort into it, or you put huge barriers in place to to prevent progress from happening. And so then it doesn't happen. And that also reinforces your worldview. So whether you've got a positive or a negative outlook, you tend to you tend to get what you believe in, and and then you believe more in what you get. So yeah, I see I see both of those things as affecting each other in in a reinforcing cycle. So maybe a, uh, a change on either side has the chance to change the direction of the reinforcing loop. Yeah. And I mean, probably the best way to do it is to push on both sides at once. Let me pause here. Uh, I've got I, yeah, my sin is curiosity. I could ask you a thousand more questions. I also uh, I, I tend to to understand that my questions go in these kind of weaving ways that uh, people can kind of, that can can find frustrating sometimes. And so I'm I'm curious, like, what's been the the thing that you you know you wish I'd asked or you wish you'd gotten to talk about that that might have been frustrating in this experience? Like, what what didn't I ask that I should have? What's missing? I don't know. The thing I always end up geeking out about is like the 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 substance, like sort of on the ground. You'd ask me about. Uh, uh, you know, you know why cement is like super cool, or like you know how did we act, or you know what happened with the bicycle, right? Why did that take so long, or like you know about anything I've I've actually blogged about. That's always that's always fun if you want to go into any of those details. I'm always way too meta. I'm looking for the game behind the game. How how would you get a 14 year old excited about this? What what story would you tell them that would just open their eyes and and be the gateway drug to progress? Oh man. You know, there could be lots. My friends at Mystery Science are doing this really well with even younger students and sort of coming up with great ways to get them uh, interested in like science uh, questions on this. Sometimes it's about inventions, but you know, kids are just so curious. But just, you know, pointing out to them that this something they love and is part of them, like, didn't always exist, right? And so, like, you know, if the kid loves to ride bicycles, right, the idea that the you know, just point out like somebody had to invent the bicycle at some point. And in fact, the first bicycles were pretty dumb. They were, they were really like not, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't nearly as good as the bike you get to ride today. And so just like sort of, um, you know, telling that story that somebody had to struggle and experiment and like make a bunch of mistakes, but then ultimately they, they brought this new thing into the world that, that never existed before. You know, I would, I would tap into whatever a, a kid is actually sort of naturally interested in and just, and just kind of open their eyes to this this history that, of course, they don't they don't know. I think that's a great answer for you know if if you know somebody brought you their fourteen year old and said you know what do what do you do with yeah you you've got it you've got a year like convince kid or got a day convince this kid. What if a middle school came to you and said we're going to give you a semester to teach 
you know, progress to middle schoolers, you got 30 kids, what would the curriculum look like? Oh man, that would be fun. I'd probably break it up along the lines that I'm sort of currently thinking about, you know, the, the way that I currently organize my my research topics. I would want to cover at a high level the kind of materials and manufacturing. So like steel, plastic, uh, how we got, you know, automation of, you know, machines to make things for us instead of making them by hand. I would want to cover food and medicine. So some of the big developments in in agriculture in and in, and in medical technology, energy, steam, oil, electricity. Um, maybe we'd touch on nuclear. I would want to cover uh, transportation, certainly. You know, ships, navigation, uh, railroads, uh, powered you know powered uh, transportation up to, of course, you know, cars and planes. I would want to cover information, how we you know writing and kind of how we um, you know the the origins of that and printing and then kind of going into yeah, the 19th century, you got you know, tabula, you know, mathematical machines, uh, adding machines, calculating, tabulating machines, and then ultimately kind of the computer and the convergence of, you know, electronic communications. So like telegraph, telephone, so forth, photography, and then everything and film, and then everything kind of converging on this computer that fits in your pocket. That's a fascinating story. Those would be some of the biggest things I think, you know, that I would cover. Uh, you know, obviously I'll have to do it all at a level that that is appropriate for the middle schoolers, but. I think those are fascinating, like stories of progress. I'm going to classify them as facts, which is slightly unfair, but sets up the the follow up question, which is, what about worldview? Like, what are what are the what's the philosophy behind the facts that you feel like you'd have to, you know, inculcate a group of 14 year olds with before they could appreciate those stories if if they didn't intrinsically? First off, I would be a little careful about that because one, there's sort of a danger of I don't know proselytizing a worldview too much, which is tempting and not even inherently wrong, but you I think you want to be a little careful about that. Um, and two is like, I, 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 I hate how things in school, you know, sometimes come down as just kind of like, well, here's what the teacher believes. I really want, I, you know, I, I really want any students of this to take the same approach that I'm taking was let's look, let's just first understand the story on the ground. What literally happened? And like, that's the foundation for any worldview. And again, this comes back to why did I do this whole thing to, to challenge the foundations of my own worldview and to re-examine them and to, and to shore them up or shift them if they need shifting. I just wanted to like learn these stories. And these stories are fascinating in their own right. Like there's so much like really cool detail to go into. But you know, okay, but that said, yes, I think there are some themes that you could come at with the kids and that I would want them to learn. I think one thing I would just want them to learn is just like, Look, you can't take any of this for granted. Everything in the world, you know, is that great Steve Jobs quote, everything in the world that you see around you was invented by somebody at some point. I would want them to, to learn that. I think that's uh, a, like a big picture thing that's really important. The fact that it was really hard to do, the fact that every inventor went through uh, like a lot of trial and error and messed up a lot and had setbacks and failures. The fact that the um, inventors were often uh, ridiculed and disbelieved and, you know, people told them it wasn't going to work. And when they did it, the people told them they shouldn't have done it. And, you know, so just like the, the kind of, like we look back on these people and of course we say, aha, the hero of history who did this great thing. But then you go back and even at the very moment they were doing it, they were facing all sorts of opposition. And so I think that kind of, you know, bit of the historical worldview is, is really important. And just kind of learning to, again, just learning to appreciate all of this and learning to appreciate that we owe everything that we have to as, you know, everything, everything that we have today is a gift from our ancestors and we should be grateful for it. And, you know, maybe in some small way, we can pay it forward in our own lives. I think more than anything else, that's what I would want to communicate. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I love the idea of, hey, let's just focus on telling the stories and the facts and let people build their own worldviews from that. And and I think that caveat at the start of this was very important. It's it, This 
triggered something for me from a worldview standpoint, which is uh, George Lakoff um, had a piece uh, that I that. I want to say it was like Los Angeles Times or something like that in 2017 that was about kind of the the struggles politically between Democrats and Republicans. And as somebody who has kind of progressive values, it, it, it challenged something in me, which is the idea that people with progressive values tend to think that it, it is, it's about facts and stories and reason and that those actually don't tie to the way that large you know, percentages of the population internalize messages, kind of small D democratic values, not not big D democratic values. And I'm kind of curious, like, like, do you think that 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 approach that you're, you know, advocating for there is something that kind of universally can be appreciated and, and understood and would lead to connection and understanding and development? Or is there, you know, a potential bug in the system here of there's a lot of people whose brains don't internalize stories or narratives or values that way. So I believe something was a little paradoxical and I honestly don't know that I can even resolve the paradox at this point, which is on the one hand, I think it's very true that like the vast majority of people honestly don't think very carefully, don't aren't like super logical, don't like always are, are much more prone, especially in deep philosophical and especially moral issues are, or anything that really touches on their deepest worldview, they're very prone to just sort of go along with feelings and, uh, you know, not follow a logical argument to the end or sort of ruthlessly accept its consequences. I think it's the minority of people who do think at that level who actually sort of move the world. But at the same time, I also believe that in the long run, it is argument and facts and evidence and logic that do or can move the world. It's not the only thing that moves the world. Sometimes the it's, but it's, I think it's the only thing that moves that really moves the world consistently in a good direction. So I think we need to do our best to make the case based on facts and evidence and logic and reason as much as we can. And I think that ultimately will sort of get its way out into the world. Part of the way it gets its way out into the world is that it gets translated into things like, you know, narratives and stories, which I think, you know, stories people, a much broader set of people are able to pick up and and uh, respond to and resonate with. And especially when it gets into fiction and, and art and it uh, and literature and it uh, and and popular, you know, culture like movies and it that that's a very powerful way to transmit ideas into the culture and to uh, or to to resonate, amplify ideas that are starting to take hold in some people's minds. So I don't know. I think we need it again. I think we need it on all levels. At the end of Pinker's book, Enlightenment. Now he had this comment that was something like, "This is my contribution. This is what I can do." It might not resonate with everybody, but I kind of hope that somebody who's a better popularizer than I, you know, who's better at uh, spreading memes or I forget exactly how he put it. He's like, you know, I hope other people kind of pick up this banner and, and, and run with it and maybe get it out to an even broader set of people. And I think I think that's true. And that's, you know, that's that's a good way to look at it. I think the world needs more public intellectuals in the vein of, you know, uh, the Feynman's of the world. And I, I think I categorize some of the work you're doing in this, you know, synthesizing and popularizing as walking down that path. So I, I appreciate it and, and thank you for what you're doing. You've been, you've been incredibly gracious with the last, uh, gosh, two hours of your time. What do, you, uh, what do you hope that people have learned from this? You know, obviously the existence of me and my project, but I hope also maybe I've either opened people's eyes a bit or maybe just kind of strengthened their priors uh, or their, their beliefs about human progress, about what an achievement it is and about how much we should respect it and appreciate it and work to drive it forward and what kind of an important thing that is in the world today for uh, for everybody for all of humanity
what if anything, um, I find that oftentimes, especially like early on in a project, the first couple of years, or for especially first couple of months that you're doing this publicly and starting to go on more podcasts and things like this, I find that often in the in the vein of teaching, we also learn things ourselves. What if anything have you have you learned from the last you know two hours of of your own uh, explorations of these thoughts that you might not have vocalized before? I think you pushed me to articulate some stuff at a philosophical level about my philosophy and other philosophies that has been on the back of my head, but maybe I haven't talked about quite so much explicitly. And that was interesting to me to at least hear it come out in a way that was maybe slightly more coherent than I thought I would be able to do. So very cool. Very cool. Any, where would you point people to want to learn more? Yeah, check out my blog, rootsofprogress.org. Follow it or me on Twitter. I'm Jason Crawford on Twitter and the blog itself. I, I put everything at Roots of Progress on Twitter. And you can subscribe by email as well or uh, join the Reddit group or, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to subscribe and follow. Awesome. Anything parting wisdom you, you were dying to impart that I never gave you the opportunity to? No, just let's all move forward together as, as a humanity. Who's I? Couldn't have said it better myself. 